Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. Something I don't often talk about, because it's such a niche interest, and I get fanatically detail-oriented in a way that leaves people out of the conversation, is my love of horror movies. Which is a complicated thing, because while I love them, while I see great craftsmanship and imagination, I know that Leprechaun 4, when the Leprechaun goes to space, is not a good movie. Nobody should watch it. Anyone who tells you that you should watch it is a criminal. But there's something about having grown up with Leprechaun as a character, or any other slasher, Freddy, Jason. I feel such warmth toward these figures that whenever I'm watching one of their movies, one of their more recent movies, my critical faculties just kind of go into suspension. What I crave is the company of the character, the mood of the franchise. Like when I'm reading a review online of, you know, Friday the 13th Part 8, Jason Takes Manhattan, and the reviewer says, oh, this one is just like all the other ones. Like I honestly don't understand the point of saying that. Taking the time to point out that these slasher movies are repetitive is like systematically walking up to every woman in the mall and telling her that she's not your mother. But also, I, like, that's kind of why I'm saying that any, anyone who says to you, anyone who recommends to you Leprechaun 4, Leprechaun in Space, is a criminal, not only because it's a complete waste of your time, it's because Leprechaun in Space, or its sequel, Leprechaun in the Hood, or the sequel to that, Leprechaun Back to the Hood, these are movies that you find. The only reason anyone on Earth should stumble upon Jason Goes to Hell, or Hellraiser 3, or Freddy's Dead The Final Nightmare, is because they watched the first one and the second one, the decent installments, and then they, there was something about the mood of the movie, the tone of it, that it just triggered such warmth in you that you were eager for another installment even if you knew that it was going to be bad. It's like when you, it's like if you're on a porn site and you see that there are different channels for, for weird kinks. Like if you're not titillated by the idea of a violent leprechaun on a spaceship, you probably just shouldn't, you shouldn't even look in that direction. I'm not ashamed of this interest though. I, I love to nerd out with my turd out. Like I'm cool, I'm cool with showing people that I, I am like Talmudically familiar with the Chucky and Freddy franchise, Jason, Leatherface, Pinhead. I know that these movies are considered a waste of time by many people. I do not contest that conviction. It's just at the end of the day, you like what you like. But what I am somewhat touchy about, somewhat reluctant to explore or discuss is the politics of these movies, which have only dawned on me in the past few years, long after that in, that initial spark of interest kind of, you know, took hold and blew up into an inferno. What comes to mind here, I, to give you an example, if you've been listening along with the show, you might remember I was telling you a few days ago about um, this term paper that I got to write in college where my professor was super relaxed and she was like, hey, just do your term paper on anything you want. And so I wrote my paper about this succession of slasher movie remakes that were being released by New Line Cinema. They did a remake of Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, Friday the 13th, and Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And what I pointed out about those movies, and maybe this is all in my head, uh, who knows, but w what I notice is that in, the, in their efforts to make these slashers scary again, 
the one thing that New Line Cinema added to all three of them, to the new iteration of Freddy and of Jason and Leatherface, is that they were all conspicuously poor. They live in abject poverty. We get close-ups of their rotted teeth, the dirty stiffness of their clothes, the squalor of their living spaces. What it kind of suggested on, on the part of the production company, a company that knows its audience and that churns these movies out in accordance with years and years of very reliable data, what it showed is that in their experience, if you want your audience to fear a character, the easiest way to do that is to make that character poor, make them dirty. I guess the implication is that if, if this person isn't concerned with being dirty or having nice things, they must not care about anything. They're a loose cannon. They've got nothing to lose. And as vulgar an idea as that sounds, there is some sense behind it, I think. Because for most of us, our behavior is reined in by fear of our own financial concern for our own financial situation. The only reason you don't tell your abusive boss to go fuck himself is because you can't afford to lose that job. Also, I know uh, like almost an, um, an embarrassing amount of people who are very confident in their abilities as a drunk driver, and literally the only thing that inhibits them from driving home shit-faced is a fear that if they do get pulled over, they're gonna blow a positive on that device and on the breathalyzer, and they're gonna have to pay $10,000 in penalties. Vanity and economy are two tried and true ways, especially in America, of keeping people in order, keeping their behavior predictable. People don't wanna look stupid, and they don't wanna be poor. So I guess it's implied that someone who doesn't care about money or about wading in their own filth and looking ridiculous, that's a person who can't be controlled because they're not afraid of anything. Which reminds me, I was reading something somewhere about how Americans are very removed from the realities of the body. Like it was observing the fact that people used to die at home, surrounded by families, but now they die in hospice or in hospital. And so we, their relatives, don't have to experience their bo our loved one's body as an object. Also, our media shies away from the depiction of disabilities. Our mainstream news doesn't show injuries. Also shit like we tell people that we need to use the restroom. And that is our euphemism for, I gotta blow my nose, I gotta poop, I gotta pee. Which also, I, I, it reminds me of two things. I don't remember where I read it. I'm thinking it was a David Foster Wallace piece, but I'm not sure where. It was saying that of the animals we eat, we tend to give euphemistic names to them if we consider them like, to have some measure of personality. Like, no one's ever gonna call you and say, hey, come over to my house, we're gonna grill up some cows. You'll never see a listing on the menu at a four-star restaurant that says, young, dewy-eyed, inexperienced, soft, and utterly harmless baby cow. No, they call that sweet baby cow veal. Meanwhile, we call its mother beef, or steak, or burger. Lobster, on the other hand, are beady-eyed, terrifying, fucking snap-snap, clawing things. We throw them into boiling water, and then we wear bibs with their faces on it while we fucking crunch their body open and gobble their insides. And then we call their families while we're doing it, and we say, put me on speakerphone, and guess what I'm doing to Leonard? Same thing with shrimp and chicken and gator and frog legs. Because we never imagine ourselves cuddling with those animals, we're honest. We don't mind being honest with ourselves about the fact that we're fucking killing and eating them. And then the other thing. I go to a coffee shop on Brickle sometimes called Dr. Smood, and Dr. Smood has one bathroom. And th the, this coffee shop is like 
cavernous, and it's got faux stone walls and floors. The acoustics are insane. And in that one tiny bathroom, the soap dispenser is always loose on the wall. And whenever it's quiet in the dining room and people are studying or like talking softly over their meal, you'll sometimes hear the soap dispenser crash to the floor inside the bathroom. And everybody looks up and they start looking at each other. And I think it's always like a fun little moment because you can tell everyone is trying to imagine what the fuck is going on in that bathroom. And they're probably imagining crazy shit. And then whenever the person who knocked over the soap dispenser comes out of the bathroom, Everybody in the restaurant looks at them and you can tell they like they want to explain themselves. They want to say, I wasn't doing weird shit in there. The soap dispenser is just loose on the wall. But it's too late. You know what we all have in our head right now? Images. Anyway, we're talking about the dicey politics of horror movies. The politics inevitably are there, intentionally or not. One of the landmarks in horror movie discourse is the book Men, Women, and Chainsaws by Carol J. Clover, which came out in the early 90s. And while it isn't introducing the idea of the final girl in a slasher movie, Clover does a remarkable job in that book of explaining the final girl trope. Not just telling us what it is, which is simple enough on its surface, right? The final girl is the final girl. She's the one who survived, the one who kills the monster. But consider that inherent to the idea of a final girl is the idea that a bunch of other girls were killed. Not only killed, they were probably undressed too, because this is a slasher movie and that's always there. They were in a shower or they were skinny dipping in an isolated lake or they were about to have sex with someone that they trusted. In other words, they were in a place where they felt safe. And then a slasher, a man pretty much in all cases, he goes into that safe space and kills her, usually with some kind of penetrative act. It is, in essence, a big fucking abstract rape, essentially. Clover also points out that the audience for these movies is overwhelmingly male and overwhelmingly teenage or adolescent. They're of an age when their sexuality is kind of taking shape and there's probably in that hormonal stew a kind of dangerous or concerning overlap between sexual impulses and violent impulses. And when you consider the uniformity of these movies' tropes, the formula that they're all built upon, it suggests that there's some kind of service they are providing, some sort of itch that they're scratching. And that's why they don't deviate from the formula. Friday the 13th Part 9 is not being hauled into production because the filmmaker has something to say, or because they wanted to expand on the Jason mythos. No, it was thrown together on a tight budget because it's a household name, it's a familiar brand, and it is as dependable as any law of nature that a few hundred thousand young men are going to pay decent money to sit in a dark theater, anonymous, and watch women get naked and then stabbed. So on that front, yes, I'm a little bit shy about my affinity for these movies, the fact that they were so instrumental in the development of my imagination when I discovered them as a kid. And another person who, who feels kind of dicey about that shared affinity is the novelist Grady Hendrix. Hendrix's new novel is called Final Girl Support Group, and its premise draws together the final girls from the most popular slasher franchises. Heather, for instance, is, is one of the characters, and she's a survivor of, of a killer named the Dream King, who, like Freddy Krueger, attacks kids in their sleep. Also, she's named after Heather, I think it's Langenkamp? That's the name of the actress 
who was the hero of Nightmare on Elm Street's 1, 3, and 7, I think. Adrienne is another character, and she is the survivor of a killer at Camp Red Lake, a killer who bears no small resemblance to Jason Voorhees, who once upon a time stalked the grounds of Camp Crystal Lake. The novel picks up with all of these women uh, about 20 years, 25 years after their attacks. They are in a support group, they're talking about their trauma, but the trauma feels distant now. They're thinking about calling it quits, about going their separate ways. They don't really understand anymore why they're talking about this shit that happened so long ago. But then they start getting killed. One by one, they start getting slashed. And the novel is a mystery. It's noir. It's a, a slasher movie. It's a 70s style conspiracy narrative. But I, I felt more pointedly that it's a study, an introspection. When you watch these movies as a kid, you see these teenagers on Camp Crystal Lake or Elm Street getting slaughtered, and they seem like anonymous adults, or like your peers, slightly older. But now, I know it's the case for me, when I watch those movies at 30, it's, it's not that, you know, I'm too sensitive to it, but I marvel at how young these characters are. And every now and then there is a kind of remove where I'm like, fuck. They, they just cut that kid's head off. What I'm saying is that as I've gotten older, I, I've gotten more sensitive and I'm prone to humanizing even the most two-dimensional character. I feel something of a pang sometimes when I'm watching these slasher movies and it's similar to the way that everybody looks young when I see the photos of all the people who died in the Parkland shooting or the Newtown shooting or the Pulse nightclub shooting or the Las Vegas shooting or the Colorado shooting. Even if they don't look young, they look alive. They look like people with lives that are now over. Hendrix asks in the novel how slashers can still be significant. These, these stories about lone, ugly men killing eight or nine teenagers in a night. When we routinely see in our headlines that a lone, ugly man has killed 17 people with an assault rifle. Or 50. And he did it all at once and for no reason at all except maybe he was angry at a woman. I strongly recommend Hendrix's new novel, Final Girl Support Group. I absolutely loved it, in part, of course, because it speaks my coded language of horror movie references, and, and there are Easter eggs galore for anybody who likes that, but also because he is a professional genre writer, and he has managed to turn out a book that has real substance, real critical insight, and moral reckoning, but whose main concern is in being fun and propulsive, and funny, and scary. This book's main concern is in satisfying its reader, and in that respect, it's a terrific success. Grady Hendrix was kind enough to chat with me for an hour last week about slashers, publishing, and the daily grind of writing. Here is that conversation. Prior to getting into the book, actually, I've been um, binging your interviews for the past few days. You've dropped a few references over the course of um, your promotion for this book to your wife's situation, um, that your wife is a chef and she's had, she had to close her two restaurants. But I think the most recent reference I heard you make to that situation was sort of in the dark days of the pandemic. May I ask how that's how that's going? Yeah, um, better, better. Um, you know, we're, we're, she's back up in both places. Um, it's, uh, we, she has about six managers who sort of weathered the storm with her at Dirt Candy. And uh, the other place, we have a couple of people in there who, two who like survived the whole thing and then hired back up. So we're doing all right. You know, um, the two things that, well, three things that don't help are, um, 
Well, actually two, I would say. Uh, one is that uh, the Restaurant Relief Act, which was part of the second round of PPP bailout money, um, was actually a bill she helped get written and get through. Uh, she works at the IRC, the Independent Restaurant Coalition. And um, she was working with the lobbyists. I mean, a lot of people in the IRC were, but she testified before Congress for it, did all this stuff. And to correct the issues with the original PPP, which a lot of BIPOC and female-owned businesses didn't have access to, they made the first two weeks of the restaurant relief money uh, that was coming out of the Small Business Association in Congress, um, only if it, people who were women-owned businesses, BIPOC-owned businesses, and veteran-owned businesses got priority in those first two weeks. And um, what happened was a bar in Texas owned by a white dude uh, and backed by Stephen Miller, if you remember him from the Trump it's administration, you. his yeah. yeah, his PAC sued on the grounds of discrimination that it discriminated against white male non-veteran owned businesses. And so an injunction was passed. So all the BIPOC owned and female owned businesses, they let the veteran owned ones through, had their access to the funds frozen. And by the time it was unfrozen, the funds were exhausted. So <laughs> something that was supposed to help these people did the exact opposite. Uh, so they're trying to get that refunded, but it's unlikely, but she'll survive. And the other thing that's not making it easy is city and state government has just been a real shambles. I mean, mask on, mask off, vaccination indoors, not vaccination indoors. Um, they got rid of delivery liquor with uh, 24 hours notice. It's just been a mess. And so that's been really hard because it makes the staff on the ground, the mask police, and they have to sort of like police the customers. And that can be tricky. You know, everyone's really anxious for things to go back to the way they were. So those two things have been hard, but otherwise weathering the storm, you know, uh, doing okay, hanging in there, um, staffed back up. So thanks for asking. No, my pleasure. I, I'm a bartender and I, I know exactly. Oh, okay. And um, yeah. so, so we have some customers who are like, who will tell the staff, take the mask off. They feel offended that the server is wearing it. It's asinine. Yeah. I, so so I, yeah. I empathize with your wife's travails. There, yeah. She's it, clearly dealing with a different level. We're di yeah, it's a different scenario. But, you know, it's really being the mask police really sucks. It's You see people come in without a mask. It's stressful. It's you know, everyone's trying to hang on. It's an extra layer of stress. We had uh, at the restaurant, this couple was there on a date and um, we asked them, this was like, this was months and months ago, but we asked them if they just wouldn't mind putting their mask on while the server was dropping stuff off at their table and they could take them off right afterwards. And one of the dudes just like hit the roof and it was a lecture and pounding on the table. And he wound up like storming off. And the guy he was on the date with was just sitting there and he's like, well, it's only like our second or third date. So I guess I'd rather know this now. So like we gave him a free drink. And, but like, I can't imagine getting like that upset that you're like, you could have sex with this person, but you'd rather be upset over masks. It's a, it's it's a bizarre a phenomenon. Um, well, hang, hang in there, man. I mean, I can't imagine what it's like to be a bartender in Florida right now. Um, so I, I, um, I have some questions about the book, but um, yeah. you, you've, been pro you've been promoting it so much and i've gleaned in these interviews some remarks of yours that kind of make me want to steer the conversation in another way because um yeah you are kind of one of the, you are i think at a point in your life where you were coming to embody one of the things that i most admire in the world which is the professional book a year or book every 16 months novelist 
And um, do you read Don Winslow's novels? No, but I know Don Winslow's work. Okay. I mean, I've read a lot of interviews with him and stuff right. like that. Well, he, he's talked about the chip on your shoulder that comes with the fact that, you know, he couldn't quit his day job until he had written seven novels. And so now in his mid 60s, he's, you know, driving it. He's, he's going harder than ever rather than right. resting on his laurels. And um, so one of the things I was interested in from what you were discussing is that you're so intimately involved in every aspect of the book's production, the writing, of course, but also the jacket design, the audiobook in this case. Your author events are sort of one-man one acts. Um, they're very immersive. Were you starting out today? Do you think you would go the indie route? Right. Yeah, probably not. Because, I, I mean, I tried the indie thing with a couple of books before I did Horror Store. And it just didn't click for me. I, I'm happy with those books. And it was really, it was really educational to take a book from start to finish, you know, from I've got this idea to what's the cover going to be to I need to write a marketing blurb for this. Um, that was really educational. But the fact is, until you, for me, until I had something that looked physically like a book, not a, not a print-on-demand book, but a book-book type book sitting in bookstores. I just couldn't get into so many channels in terms of publicity and all that stuff. And that was like in 2014. And so I think now it's even harder. Like I think now the indie marketplace is, is bigger. And on the one hand, I think that's great. I think people who really serve the niches in that marketplace, like, I mean, any kind of erotica has a dedicated niche, a lot of urban mm -hmm. fantasy. I mean, there's so many niches in self-publishing, indie publishing, that I think if you're a hardcore fan who likes a certain genre, you're getting served in a way you weren't probably 10 or 15 years ago. But for me, I felt like one of the problems I, I had, and this could have been real or imagined, my stuff falls in the middle of genre. Like it's not hardcore horror. And it's also not sort of like serious horror in the sense of um, like Bentley Little wrote a book 2014, there was just a straight up traditional haunted house book. And Ramsey Campbell wrote Nazareth Hill was also like that, both of which I thought were really good books. Both were very traditional haunted house stories. And my stuff sort of, it's kind of funnier and it's not. And I felt like unless I was really steering into the sweet spot of a genre, it was harder to get a foothold and to know who to sell to with indie publishing. Um, and also the other thing is I... I'm really seeing it right now. I worked with Quirk uh, for most of my books until Final Girl Support Group. And um, Quirk's a smaller publisher and nothing wrong with that, but their resources are the resources of a smaller publisher. Working with Berkeley this time around for Final Girl Support Group, they've got access to the Penguin Random House publicity and marketing people. And so you're getting a lot more stuff. The amount of hands-on marketing and publicity I did suddenly exploded because there were so many more opportunities and I've got the freelancers problem where I can't say no. Uh, and so I started doing so much work and it's made it really hard. Like I've got a book that's already behind for next year that's due on August 20th. Like, and I am, I am sweating it, man. I'm, uh, I'm in this stinky little office you see, like kind of like 12 to 14 hours a day, just trying to stay on top of that. Um, and the emails and the, all the other stuff. So I think that as much as I think indie works for some people, I couldn't make it work for me. Okay, you mentioned the deadline 
and sitting, spending 14 days in, in the office. And that's another distinguishing factor of like the professional bookie or writer is when you're starting out, so much of the discourse about the craft of writing is kind of ethereal. And there's discussion about getting the right cup of tea, the right position, you know, where to write, inspiration and stuff like that. And then you reach a point in your career where you're able to do without that. You're able to sort of just channel mm-hmm. your energies. Mail, Norman Mailer used to say, if you show up at your desk every day at 8 a.m., the muse will figure out that you're there. And when she needs you, she'll, right. she'll show up at 8 a.m. And I'm wondering, was there a moment or a book where you realized you had made that transition? Um, how often is it that you show up to the desk and you're just totally constipated in the mind and it's just not working? I sort of was a was a something of a journalist and a freelance writer for a very long time before I did this. So I was really used to, okay, I've got, you know, five reviews, five movie reviews this week. I've got these blurbs for this film festival catalog. I said I'd write this piece for tour. Like I was used to a really intense workload and just sitting down and getting it done. There was a point, I would say probably in the mid 20 teens, maybe even earlier than that, when I realized that I didn't have to sweat it quite so much that actually if I relaxed a little bit, I would write better stuff. And um, like every line didn't have to be a joke or something quippy. Like I could actually chill out and that actually gave what I was writing a lot more clarity. And I also um, realized that there were things I just had to do. I really need to, at the very least, write a draft, set it aside for at least a day, come back to it, even for just an article or a blurb in a catalog or something. I got to come back to it the next day and probably like put it aside at least for like five or six hours, look at it again and send it. I can't write something and send it. It's just impossible for me. Uh, with a book that gets like a longer delay there. Um, but the, the challenge still is sitting down and focusing. Um, you know, the one thing I have going for me is that I know that that's the game. Anything to get me focused, right? Like, I will go sit somewhere else to write if I need to. I will do the book I'm doing right now. Um, I've done a ton of longhand pages just because um, that I needed to not be on my computer doing it just to get my butt in the seat because that's the challenge, getting your butt in the seat and then focusing. And I do all kinds of stuff to keep that focus. You know, an app that shuts off the internet access for hours at a time. I meditate so I can keep it. I do all kinds of junk and when I'm doing well, I'm doing well. And then something will happen like the release date for final girls hits and I'm doing all this press and I owe all these articles and all these interviews and um, all these signed book plates and books and I'm screwed for a week. And it takes me like two or three days to get back in the rhythm after that. Um, It's, you know, I'm, I'm, it's hard. So whatever gets me in the desk, I don't think it gets easier. Throughout high school and college, I got very enchanted in a little while afterwards with very, very prosaic writers where after every paragraph, you would kind of stop and chew on the language, like Cormac McCarthy, stuff like that. And what I've come to really appreciate now much more than that is very much what what I see in Don Winslow's work or Jim Harrison or yourself is the pages dissolving behind me, Mm. getting so consumed in the voice and the precision of the voice and the fact that it seems like the writer went back over this with a scalpel to remove every trace of fat 
the story is constantly being advanced. And I think that's the distinguishing factor. Maybe, I don't know if, if this is just a semantic difference between craftsmanship and artistry, because now, especially after reading Joyce Carol Oates' um, essay about Cormac McCarthy's entire body of work, I revisit the work of this dude who was so influential to me, meant the world to me when I was in college. And it seems so boyish, so obsessed with guns and boots. And um, yeah. And, and, and the absence of commas is a presence and shit like that. And I'm wondering, do you ever think, I, have to, I would have to read Final Girls a second time to find the, the beauty in the language, not because it isn't there, but because I was so propelled by it. There's so much momentum. Do you anguish, agonize over these things? Are you trying to make the book fly? Are you killing your darlings? Do you have darlings? Yeah. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. All this. Hey, by the way, where'd that Joyce Carol Oates article appear? That, that I think it was in the London Review of Books, but it's collected in her ebook uh, in Rough Country. Okay. No, I want to read that. Uh, I've tried to read Cormac McCarthy a few times, and I just—it's not on my wavelength. You know, I just yeah. can't do it. Um, but uh, so yeah, no, all that is I do very consciously. I think that started happening. I don't know, right around we sold our souls. That I was—I read someone talking about how you want your, how they want their writing to be a clear piece of glass between the reader and the story. And that's kind of how I feel. Chuck Palahniuk, someone who's, who's talking about writing has been really influential on me uh, just because he has this real injunction that you really need to unpack everything. Um, you know, saying that someone looks sad doesn't tell you anything about how they look. It just, it's sort of a shortcut to avoid physically describing what that person looking sad looks like. And that's something I really try to do. And I also keep a real eye on momentum. I feel like writing is all about directing the reader's attention. And so like, I'm really conscious that my chapters all land at about 3000 words. Like sometimes a little more, sometimes a little less, but that's where I'm shooting. I try to have them all end on something that makes someone want to start the next chapter. I try to skip the boring parts. I really try hard to, you know, have my books land around 100,000 words. Uh, Final Girl Support Group was less. Southern Book Club was a little more, but like that's where I want them to land because I feel like that's a satisfying read for me. Um, the book I'm wrestling with right now is really long and really dense and I'm really struggling to, to tear it down. And, um, and there's sometimes when you cut too close, like, and that actually makes something read longer. And so that's like a balancing act for me. It's really about getting a vomit draft down and then rewriting and rewriting and rewriting and being really, really honest with myself about what works and what doesn't. Um, you know, is this scene doing a couple of things at once? What, what am I getting out of this scene? What am I getting out of this exchange? What am I getting out of this line? Um, I think it was P.G. Woodhouse who said, um, he said, you know, it's really all about the story. He said, you can cover things up with clever writing or, or funny dialogue, but really, if the story's not there behind it, you're, you're just doing tricks. And, and I really think that's true, like for me. So when you, when you talk about the density and the particular complexity of this novel that you're currently working on, is it that you're venturing in a new direction with dialogue, with labyrinthine plot? What, what is the obstacle? Yeah, so for me, every book I do, I'm trying to do something new. Like Horror Store was the first, I've written some stuff with other people before, but it was the first one sort of on my own. 
uh, with my best friend's exorcism, by accident, that wound up being a book where I was like, I really want to write about what this really felt like to me. This experience of like being friends as a teenager felt like this life and death friendship. And that required me to really dig into stuff and sort of avoid easy shortcuts and cliches and really figure out what it meant to me. Um, for uh, Paperbacks from Hell, it was just trying to find a story in this giant, dense swamp of information. You know, just all these books. Is there a spine here that goes from A to B? Is there an arc? Um, with We Sold Our Souls, I was like, can I write songs? Can I write lyrics? Like, and lyrics are really different from poetry. And I was like, can I do that? Is that possible? And also with that, it was, um, and I was really scared of doing it. So I was like, well, I need to do it. Um, and also with We Sold Our Souls, I was really trying to write about horror that was picking not from the classic horror imagery, but from the world we live in, which is a world of like chemtrails and swatting and active shooters and MK Ultra. And it's my lowest selling book to date, but I'm very happy with where I got with it. Um, with Southern Book Club, it was this real experiment to be like, okay, I've written about two friends. Can I write about five? And I'd written about like one main guy. Can I write about a bunch? Can I write about a group? Can I do that convincingly? With Final Girl Support Group, it was, can I do first person? Um, with uh, this book, um, which is going to come out hopefully next summer, I hope. Um, I really am really, really trying to write about siblings. I've never done that. I've My characters usually don't have big families, although they always do have families. They may not be on the page, but they exist. But one of my sisters-in-law once said to me after reading My Best Friend's Exorcism with both main characters are only children, she's like, how come everyone's an orphan? How come everyone's an only child in books? Like, I don't <laughs> hardly know any only children. And she's right it is really hard to write about families. And like to write the book I'm writing now, I realized that I needed to know the whole history of this family. And so I've got a document that is this, it's a family of four. It's not that many people. They don't even have pets. Um, <laughs> and it is, it is a 30,000 word document that takes this family year by year from before the parents met through the moment when the kids are in their 30s, when the book begins. And I just needed it. I needed to know what had happened and all this stuff because a lot of family is shorthand. A lot of family is stuff that's happened before. Um, your sister says, oh, don't worry. I'll check in on mom. And you're like, oh shit. No, anyone else would go, well, that's nice. And you're like, oh shit. Because I know that she doesn't check in on mom right. and she pretends to, and she doesn't do it. And she did it that time right after Hurricane Hugo in 89. And she <laughs> says she's changed, but she hasn't. And that brings me to the second point, which is why does she keep taking furniture that's supposed to go to me out of the house? Like, you know, and it's just these chains. And so that's been really, really hard is to write about a family. And, um, and so right now, I mean, this book, this draft I'm on, is it like, just under 200,000 words. And I'm in the last oh, push for the climax. And I know half this book has to go, uh, which I'm actually looking forward to, but I got to get it out and then cut. And so I've got about, let's see, I've got about 10 days maybe to get this sort of climax on the page. And then I'm going to set it aside for about a week and just turn in a little late and just go through and cut relentlessly. And some stuff's easy. I mean, there's a big flashback in the middle that's um, 
for when one of the characters joins a radical puppet collective, because uh, it's about families, but also <laughs> about evil puppets. Um, that's, that's based on time when I was in a radical puppet collective. And that, I know, that thing, man, it is like 25,000 words. That's got to be like five. But there's other stuff where I'm like, oh, this, this stuff needs to be here. And so I'm, I'm, I'm at a loss. Um, you know, I've but, never heard... I've never heard anyone, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I've never no, heard no, anyone, no, no, please. an author talk about that submission process. And it sounds like what you're saying is, you know that this is maybe a hundred thousand words longer than it's, than it, than is, than is good for it. Yeah. And, and you're going to turn it in. And then a week later, you're going to go in with a hatchet. Is, is there, is it common to sort of submit a book basically for the point of saying, hey guys, just so you know, it's done. I am working on it. <laughs> maybe don't even look at it. I will be resubmitting an emaciated draft in a few months. Yeah, um, a lot of people don't do that. Um, I do because I know that, um, and usually I'm pretty proud of the draft I turn in. I've done it enough times and I see the dismay on like my agent's face <laughs> after they read it or my editor trying to stumble into something nice to say, then it's a mess and that's okay. I know better than anyone else what's wrong with a book. It's good to get other input on it. Like they, my editor may come back and go, I am not buying this dad. He's just not working for me. And that lets me know where to save time and where to spend time. Um, but I know I got to chop all this stuff out. You know what I mean? So um, it's hard to uh, weather the... So I read the manuscript right? and, you know, but I got a thick skin at this point, you know, and it's, and in the interest of time and getting things moving, I need eyes on this, you know? So which are, which, what are your most prized avenues of affirmation? Like, is it your wife's opinion? Do you have a certain reader group betas? Yeah. So I've got a bunch of people who will beta read for me, which is really, really helpful. I usually don't do that until I'm a little tighter. The editor I used to have, uh, Jason Rakulik at Quirk, and the editor I have right now, Jessica Wade at Berkeley, have both been great. One of the hardest things I've discovered in any kind of entertainment ecosystem is finding people who'll say no. Um, and editors who just say, no, this doesn't work here. I don't think it's good is, or rare. Um, and Jason was not only really good at marketing, but he was really not shy about saying no, which was frustrating at times, but valuable. Um, I always get my wife to read it. She read the first draft of My Best Friend's Exorcism and was just like, this is terrible. Uh, and she was right, but it was really upsetting. And I just... I just basically regurgitated a John Hughes movie. I hadn't done the work. I just hadn't done the work. And so, um, and, and she'll do that from time to time. Um, she's been pretty stressed out the last couple of books. And so, and she's also been reading Final Girls since like 2014. So she's right. a little, eh. um, so I'm curious about the feedback on this one. Well, when do you think, oh, you said you're, you're, you're approaching the climax. So what do you think yeah. another 10 days? In about 10 days, I'm going to give it to my editor and agent, but I'm going to actually chop out this thing and get it a lot smaller, do a first round of that before I give it to my wife, because I just know there's stuff that needs to be fixed. Okay. The, um, the filmmaker, Kevin Smith, Silent Bob, Clerks. Um, yeah, yeah. He, he, was, he told the story, I, I've mentioned it on the podcast before, but that he, um, when he was working on Jersey Girl, he said that like, you know, he's, you spend so many months writing it and then a month casting it and then pre-production 
is its own hassle. Production is its own mountain to climb post marketing. And then it came out and it bombed in two days and that was it. And he was like, I just felt like, what have, what have I been doing for the past 15 months? And so he talks about the importance then of having a number of projects in the air at once. So that I imagine, and maybe, I, I don't know if you feel this way, by the time Final Girls came out, you've got this, uh, this forthcoming nonfiction book in the bag, um, uh, Our Fist Baked Bricks, and yeah. you are in a fever pitch with your subsequent novel. Does that immunize you to the, the feedback, the critical feedback of Final Girls because you're two or three projects removed? It helps. Um, but I also, I don't read reviews. Um, if it's like the New York times, I will, but like, I just don't, I, I know what's wrong with my books. You know what I mean? Like I, I know better than anyone. So I don't see the point in reading them. Like I know what I want to do with the next one. Um, and I used to not even pay attention to sales numbers. I just assumed if there was a problem, someone would tell me starting with Southern book club. And then with final girls, I've had people who've been very active, mostly my agent who's been very active at letting me know where we are sales-wise. And I've actually enjoyed that. Um, it's a little depressing because publishing numbers are just weak in general. You know, a book doing great is sounds like a failure when you compare it to like a movie. You know what I mean? Like a book that sells 12,000 copies in a week is a book that's doing really well. It sounds awful to me. Like really 12,000 copies in a country of 350 million people. Um, but you know, that's, books are just smaller. Um, so, but I really try not to pay attention to any of that stuff. I, um, I used to be a moderator on Reddit for a subreddit, uh, R Horror Lit, which was sort of this moribund thing with like 300 subscribers years ago. And I really worked on it for very, very, for many, many years. And like, it's got like a couple of hundred thousand subscribers now. It's really active. It's a really great crowd on there. But I had to sort of stop looking at it because it, um, it whenever a conversation about one of my books would pop up, I'd always kind of be curious to look at it. And then I'd be like, no, the last thing these guys want is their parents coming in the party in the basement and looking right. on the lights. Like, so I just, and I was just like, well, then I don't want to, it just got too weird, you know? And there were people on there who hated my books and which is totally fine with me. Like, absolutely. You have the right to hate my books. Um, but that got hard and I didn't want to see it. And so I just don't really moderate it. It's not been a very hands-off way. I just, I'm doing my thing, you know? And right. so the, it's always nice to hear from people who read my books and take the trouble to get in touch, but I just don't want to read reviews. But so, yeah, working on other stuff helps. And just sort of having my own sort of bar, I want to hit my own mark, I want to hit, you know, it's like, it, it, that's what I'm more interested in, which sounds really egotistical. No, no. I, and it feeds into what I was about to say, because it sounds like almost you know, sort of for your mental health and for your creative spine, you sort of separate yourself from the critical from the feedback being generated by yeah. books um because you you mentioned being in the freelance in the freelance game can't say no to projects do you feel that that plus the rigor of the book a year schedule um is there part of you that's like oh what would i be writing if if you know the mortgage wasn't due or if you know oh, yeah do you think your career trajectory would be different I don't know if it would be different, but I do know there's a book I want to write. I've wanted to write it for years and it's a book I'm really going to write. And I know that that book will probably be a two-year book. It's just, it's going to require that much research and it's going to be a bigger book. 
And I've got the next book for 2022 and the book for 2023, and then I can write that one. And so that's one that definitely I'm going to step back a little bit and, and slow down for because I know it needs it. Um, Southern Book Club, that took me a little longer to write because it was a tougher book in terms of like just getting it right. Um, that was like a year and a half for that book instead of a year. So, um, so that happens. Yeah, I wonder about that sometimes, but I also... I also know how much time I waste. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I know that um, right now I'm writing, I'm sort of in the zone with this book. I'm doing about 4,000 words a day, which is good. Yeah. I know that like, also during the day though, if I could just cut down my freaking email, I could probably be writing 5,000 words a day. You know what I mean? Like, I just, there's just a lot of other crap to do. So I, I, you know, my wife's a chef. She's not home at nights. What am I doing with my time? Watching Netflix? Like, I'm not, I, I know that I'd be writing different books, but I'm not too concerned about it. And I know that there are different books I want to write that I'm going to take the time to do. They're just a couple of books in the future. Right. And since you, you mentioned spending the evenings watching Netflix, I imagine that because you are, do you feel in some respects like you're a steward of some kind of the genre? And, you know, for instance, you're doing publicity for Final Girls now. You, you know the question of David Gordon Green's Halloween is going to come up. You got to see it because people are going to want right. to know your opinion. Is there, is there a sense, though, of, of duty, sort of, I don't know, brand maintenance when you're spending the evening watching, you know, old tales from the crypt or something? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, I don't watch a lot of new stuff, um, but I do like when Halloween, the new one comes out, I'm going to see it because, yes, like you said, I know people are going to ask about it. And I'm going to sound I'm going to sound like a dick who has a problem with it if I'm like, I haven't watched it. Um, <laughs> but I just don't see a lot of new stuff. Most of what I see is for work, you know, like, um, you know, this week I would love to watch Suicide Club Squad on Friday night when it drops, because in the 80s, I love those comic books. But the fact is, I've got a podcast on Sunday, and I need to rewatch the entire screen franchise by then. And so Shit. Friday is Friday is three and Saturday is four. Um, and so on the other hand, I don't feel like a steward, but I feel like I got to do my homework. You know, years ago, when I was reviewing uh, for the New York Sun, um, uh, there was an Osmane Sinimbe retrospective an African filmmaker and I watched everything in the retro but I hadn't really watched outside his other work outside these eight films and I wrote a piece on it and it was fine but I was winging it and I faked mm. it a little bit like I need to do my homework and if I'm going to talk about something I need to have seen it from start to finish or read it from cover to cover and that's just my job and um and I also love knowing this stuff I love the fact that I've seen Iced and I've seen, you know, Fatal Gains and all this stuff. And, and you know, that I know this stuff, that I'm reading these books right. because it just gives me more of a solid ground to shoot off my opinions from. Yeah, one of the things I so enjoyed with Final Girl Support Group um, and kind of puzzled about is like, I, I love all these movies too. I caught innumerable Easter eggs and yet, I, I feel like the, be the best thing ever generated from the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise is the documentary that came out a few years ago, the four and a half hour documentary. Oh, which about, is so good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, any day of the week, I would prefer to watch that over those movies. And it's weird. It's one of these things now where I prefer the discourse about those movies over the experience of watching them. 
Yeah. Um, no, I can see that. And I think that's a part of loving the movies though. Like, you know, I go down to this drive-in in uh, Pennsylvania, the Mahoney, and, you know, there's usually three hours between the time you get there and the time the movies start around nine when it's dark enough to start in the summer. And that's when you talk to people mm. and you hear these ridiculous opinions and these theories and all this. And that's the fun of it. Like, I don't care if something is a horror novel or a serial killer book. I don't care if, if Jaws is a slasher or not. But it's really fun to debate that stuff because in deciding if Jaws is a slasher or not and getting really passionate about it because you're arguing with someone, you have to think really hard about Jaws and slashers. Oh, true. I, 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 I had this epiphany kind of with the, with the latest, um, excuse me, Star Wars trilogy where I found I wasn't really up for seeing it as I had thought I would be, but I was going on the first day because I wanted to be able to watch all the conversation about it and participate yeah. and uh, go on the forums and watch the, the video essays on YouTube. Um, I, so you're writing extensively about, you're very, you're, you're, you're dissecting the slasher genre here <clears throat> and you've written about extensively about satanic panic. You've written your own exorcism novel. You've written about vampires. Now you're doing slashers. All of these things are kind of cyclical. And mm -hmm. about, about 15 years ago, we saw with Twilight and True Blood, there was a vampire resurgence. At the turn of the decade, there was a demonic possession again with uh, paranormal activity and stuff like that. Right. Do you, do you think the slasher movie is slated for a comeback? I don't know. You know, I'm really bad at trends. Like, yeah. you know, I really admire people like... Um, Grant Morrison, who's like the Sekhet hypothesis says that for the next 10 years due to solar activity, everything will be very fascist and militaristic and hair will be short and music will be angry and clothes will be tight. And then it'll reverse into a hippie mystical state. I'm like, I admire that kind of sort of like um, conviction and assurance. Uh, I don't have it, you know? I feel like there was a big boom in slasher stuff in like 2015 when Riley Sager's Final Girls came out and Scream Queens. And I think the Scream TV series all hit the oh, right. air. Around. I guess and it was just Final like Girl screen, right? Yeah, and also Final Girl, the movie, which is a little independent movie that was fun. Um, and um, I feel like that was sort of like a moment for it. Um, but I also feel like you're saying slashers I think are too remote and too close. On the one hand, I think they're too remote in the sense that once you correct, correct the issues with the slasher, what do you have left? You know what I mean? Like the things that make it fun, the dumb teenagers skinny dipping, the, the sort of meatheadedness of the genre, that's fun. And once you take that stuff out, is it the same thing? I mean, yes, but also maybe no. And the other thing is, I feel like on an instinctive level, people avoid slashers because it hits too close to home. It's too much like an active shooter situation. It's a heavily armed guy in a supposedly safe space, killing everyone he finds one by one. And I think that's become, an active shooter's become our new boogeyman. And I feel like people don't, people aren't all in on that right now. It's Yeah, that it's a little too raw. I really loved your assessment in the novel where you say that the, given that the these baroque methods of of dispatching oh, right. victims but you know why in the age of an ar-15 are these still symbolic and you say it's because so everyone's death feels significant we all want to believe that our death is unique. Right. i'm the guy who got the harpoon through the neck i'm the girl who fell in the blend <laughs> who got the blunder on the head yeah. um when um in 2018 uh prior to the release of glass when m night Shyamalan had kind of 
resurrected his career. He did, he sat for a long, very wonderfully confessional um, profile with Rolling Stone. And he talked about how in his early thirties, he started to really bristle at the stereotype he was getting of um, the guy who makes spooky family movies with a twist. And so in mm-hmm. trying to branch out and do some more ambitious things, he did The Happening and then Last Airbender and then After Earth, each one more embarrassing than the last, kept huge failures. And then he went silent for a long time and he made a little, he said he personally financed that indie horror movie, The Visit, made a bunch of money off of it. Yeah. And then he went back to doing what he'd always done. And he's like, I realized that there's nothing wrong with doing this, this very niche thing. And then I Googled him over the weekend because I went to see the new movie, which is okay. But I was surprised to see he's only 50. And I think something about that article game, it seems so wizened. And you too are at a point in your career where you have enough work, enough published work behind you that you could look at it and maybe see trends or a trajectory that you didn't feel as it was happening. And I'm wondering, do you feel... Also throughout your work, I noticed that the final girls are attacked and now you pick them up 25 years after everyone has forgotten them. Paperbacks right. from hell, you're picking up books that everyone has forgotten. Um, Kung Fu movies, you're about to do the same. And right. I'm wondering, is there, do, are you, do you find yourself maybe doing that, of picking up the past of Grady Hendrix and thinking, where was this going? How do I contend with it now? Is it, does it pose a question that I, in this new phase of my career, I should answer something like that? Well, I mean, you, you even missed too, My Best Friend's Exorcism, the frame of that book is these two girls reconnecting years after they went through all this stuff. And we sold our souls. It's a band that broke up back in right. the 90s. So yeah, I'm, I'm weirdly obsessed with the past. And I think a big part of that's because I'm old. Like I didn't, <laughs> no, but like I didn't get a book published until I was in my 40s. And that's late. You know what I mean? And like, so I feel like um, I'm really interested in what happens afterwards. You know what I mean? Like what happens later? And I've always have been. Um you know, I remember watching The Exorcist for the first time and like Regan and her mom hug, you know, the priest goodbye or whatever. And he heads out and I'm like, breakfast is going to be awkward for these two. Like, you know, know, she's going to have a night where she's stoned and like her mom catches her in the house and thinks she's possessed again because she's Uh. acting so weird. Like, this is going to be really awkward. So I've always been curious about what happens later, you know, um, And I don't know where that comes from, but it definitely runs through my books. I keep feeling like I've come to the end of a run and then there's more. Like I really thought um, Southern Book Club was kind of like, this is the end of a phase of my career. It's the last book I wrote that's like kind of like obsessed with the past and all this and and do it set in Charleston last time. Well, now, you know, there's Final Girls right after it that sort of comes in at a weird angle. It's got this past obsession. And the book I'm writing now is this family and it's set back in Charleston. I'm like, okay, this is the last one that that has all these like habits. I don't know. I don't know what my issue is. And I kind of don't want to shake it too much. One thing I've always admired about Stephen King is like him or hate him, he keeps doing new things. You look at John Grisham and I know John Grisham did a book about sports and he did a book about like he did a romance, but like John Grisham writes legal thrillers, you know, Anne Rice pretty much does supernatural, but occasionally she'll write a book about Jesus, but like, (laughs) then she goes back to the supernatural. Um, 
you know, you look at someone like Tom Clancy when he was alive, military adventure. And Stephen King tries something different all the time. You know what I mean? I'm going to do a fantasy novel. I'm going to do a YA book. I'm going to do... And I really admire that. My goal career-wise is to do well enough where I don't have to repeat myself. I can keep doing things that feel new and interesting to me because I know that people will probably be there for it. And do you think that Stephen King maybe suffers from, you, you were describing not quite the sycophancy of the edi editing process, but not having enough people around you to say no. Do you think Stephen King is at a point in his career where maybe everything is greenlit? Like, might it hurt his brand? Well, I don't think anything can hurt him at this point. You know what I mean? Like, well, I mean, right, he's well. pretty invincible. Um, I don't think it's something that's sycophancy with him, but I think it's a reality, which is that how do you edit Stephen King? You know, he's had a bunch of, you. let's say you start editing Stephen King books in 1985. This dude has had two or three different editors at that point. He has outlasted some of them. He's gone to a couple of houses and he sells hundreds of thousands, if not millions of books. How do you edit that? Like, how do you, how do you say, oh, I've got a way to make this better? There's things you can do. You know what I mean? You can nibble around the edges. You can, if you see a giant blind spot, you can point it out. But I don't think there's more you can do. I don't think it's possible. I don't think it's humanly possible. And I feel like one of the things that's interesting is when I hear someone, not that this is what you're saying, but when I hear someone say, oh, that Stephen King book, uh, you know, it's way too long. I think, no, it's not. It's exactly the length Stephen King wants it to be. He felt like he needed that many pages to tell that story. So to me, what's more interesting than saying, this is a story I think he's going to tell, and this is where he disappoints me by not telling it. I think, what's the story he's trying to tell? Okay, I thought it was this story, but we still got 150 pages to go with all this other stuff. So clearly the story he's telling isn't the one I think he's telling. What is it he's trying to do here? Um, and I get more out of it that way. I'm not saying the other way is wrong. I'm just saying for me, right. I get more out of it. No, that, that makes all the sense of the world. Um, I know you have a hard out. Again, thank you so much for your time. I wish you the best of luck with getting this, this novel done and also with the success of, are you going to be doing another like glut of publicity for the Kung Fu book? Yes and no. It's, it's been a little, you know, and like I'm going to be at Fantastic Fest in Austin and September and Riz is going to be there doing a launch event for the book and all this stuff. So um, I'll be the pale white nerd in the corner, you know, <laughs> saying, I don't know, go get your book signed by Riza. You'll enjoy that more. <laughs> um, yeah, so there'll be some publicity, but not as much probably. Um, but yeah. So, and by the way, I just want to say two quick things. One sure. is send me the link when this happens. Absolutely, yeah. This was really fun. And then the other thing I was going to say is definitely drop me a line in the new year because uh, the new book will be coming out at some point next summer. And I'd love to line this up again because I thought Absolutely. this was great. Oh, thank you so yeah, much. Yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. And now for a departing piece of wisdom. You've been listening to the Thousand Movie Project podcast. If you like what you heard, I would very much appreciate if you could give the show a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or just say something friendly about it wherever you can. The departing piece of wisdom this week comes from the novelist and philosopher Umberto Eco, who said, quote, Losers, like autodidacts, always know much more than winners. The pleasures of erudition are reserved for losers. The more a person knows, the more things have gone wrong. And on that note... I'll leave you for this week. As always, if you'd like to keep track of what I'm up to, you can follow the blog at www.thousandmovieproject.com. And if you'd like to support the show, you can always throw a few bucks at our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash thousandmovieproject. 
Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time.